So thanks uh, very much. It's a great honour to give this ninth uh, Dennis Sharma lecture. Uh, so my thanks to Lydia, to the Sharma family, um, to the organisers, Joe and John, uh, to All Souls College, for sponsoring uh, this lecture series. So as Joe says, my, uh, Dennis was my uh, DPhil supervisor uh, back in the 1970s. <coughs> yeah, yeah, something. Um, uh, and, yeah, uh, as, as he says, um, for the last, um, gosh, 35 years, I think, if I've got my maths right, my trajectory has taken um, a rather different uh, uh, direction. Um, but what I want to do today is to try to look uh, retrospectively, I guess, at some of the uh, issues which... Uh, in the 70s, for sure, uh, excited Dennis and uh, excited me too. Um, issues to do with the marriage of, of general relativity and quantum mechanics. Issues to do with the large-scale structure of the universe. Uh, issues to do with the very sort of meaning uh, and interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, and when I say retrospectively, what I'm going to try to do here is... Um, well, at least ask the question whether some of the mathematical concepts which I guess have become pretty much second nature to me uh, in the last, uh, whatever it is, 30-odd years, uh, things to do with, uh, with nonlinear dynamics, with chaos, with fractal uh, attractors and fractal geometry, things which are pretty central if one is looking at uh, uh, the climate system or the weather. Um, but to ask whether these mathematical concepts might actually provide... Uh, new insights into these types of problems, which, which certainly were problems that excited Dennis. Of course, these are problems still very much alive today. Uh, I think we still don't have any uh, unanimity about how to bring general relativity and quantum mechanics to get together, and we still have fundamental problems trying to understand basic quantum mechanics. So um, this may be, um, this may seem a, a, a tall order, but I'm going to try to persuade you, at least, that there are some new ways of thinking about these old problems that nonlinear dynamics might uh, bring to the table. Well, at least uh, you can make your own judgment about that by the end of the lecture. Um, so uh, let me start. The first of my protagonists is Ed Lorentz, um, protagonist in the title of my talk. Um, he's uh, a meteorologist from MIT, somebody actually I got to know pretty well. He died, unfortunately, about three years ago now, I think. Um, very famous, of course, outside meteorology, famous around the world for his, his 1963 paper on deterministic non-periodic flow. If I had more time, I'd tell you a bit more about it, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with the uh, equations which came out of that paper, three coupled ordinary differential equations, nonlinear equations, which exhibited this concept uh, we now call sensitive dependence on initial conditions. So here's two animations uh, of two initial conditions which are almost but not quite identical. They track each other for a while and then they, uh, uh, they diverge from each other. And uh, this is often called the butterfly effect, although interestingly... Uh, this is actually a bit of a misnomer. What Ed Lorentz meant by the butterfly effect is actually somewhat different to this, but again, that's another title of another lecture which I won't go into. Okay, now you might well ask, 
if you know your history, um, was actually Lorentz the first person to discover sensitive dependence of evolution on initial conditions? And in fact, in some sense, he wasn't. Um, at least 50 years earlier, Henri Poincaré, studying the gravitational three-body problem, had also uh, discovered this uh, phenomenon, essentially, of what we now call chaos. So a question you might ask is, well, what's special, what did, what's special that Lorentz brought to the table uh, that Poincaré had not already brought to the table? And in a sense, this is very much the uh, theme of my talk, that what Lorentz brought to the table in the particular equations uh, that he looked at, which were not actually present in the gravitational three-body equations, was this type of geometry in the state space of the equations which uh, the system evolved towards. So take any initial state, uh, x, y, and z at time zero, evolve it, and you see eventually it starts, no matter where you start in the state space of x, y, and z, it, it attracts towards this uh, geometry. Lorentz knew that this geometry had to have zero dimensions by looking at the structure of the differential equations. He knew that this asymptotic attracting set, as it's called, um, has to have a zero dimension, uh, zero, sorry, zero volume. But he, he didn't, uh, you know, he was struggling for a long time. It's very interesting reading his papers and his notes and things, how he struggled to try to understand what this was. He realized it couldn't be a point, because the system didn't set, settle down to a steady state. It wasn't a circle. The system didn't, wasn't periodic. The title of his paper was Non-Periodic Deterministic uh, Motion. Um, it wasn't a surface. So what was it? And he agonized about this. And in fact, I think this is one of the real pieces of genius of Lorentz to realize that uh, this geometry he was looking at, which came out of these differential equations, was actually a fractal uh, a fractal structure. Um, and what I want to talk about is that fractal structures, if we focus on the fractal structure associated with these equations rather than the, the differential equations per se, we can discover some remarkable connections into deep parts of, of 20th century mathematics. So I'm going to just highlight very briefly a couple of those. Um, things that you would never, I think, have gleaned just by looking at the differential equations as such. The reason I'm telling you this is I want to make the point that these fractal geometries, you know, often one sees fractals on uh, front covers of books or conference flyers and things, just as a kind of a sexy piece of, of geometry. Um, but no, they're much more than this. They have very profound links into, uh, into deep areas of mathematics. So just a couple of examples. The question is, how, how might one characterize this uh, fractal attractor uh, if one didn't have the differential equations to use? And one technique that people, mathematicians, uh, uh, use to try to characterize the um, attractor are looking at periodic orbits that lie, in some sense, close to, almost you could say, embedded in the attractor. They lie close within the body of the attractor. So there are many, in fact, periodic but unstable periodic orbits. These actually repeat each other. You can characterize these or describe these periodic orbits by a technique called symbolic dynamics or symbolic representation. So what one does there is you just partition the attractor into two lobes, called the left-hand lobe L and the right-hand lobe R. And then these particular periodic, or the period in general, periodic orbits that one looks at, one can specify as some um, symbolic bit string. 
So, for example, this corresponds to a periodic orbit that starts on the left-hand lobe, moves to the right, then goes to the left, then goes to the right, then goes to the left, then goes, stays on the left once more, and then keeps repeating itself. And this turns out to be topologically equivalent to the, the I was going to say common or garden, if that means something to you, trefoil knot. It's one of the basic knots in, in knot theory. And using this kind of Jones polynomial type of language, one can classify these periodic orbits, or alternatively these uh, symbolic strings, uh, as knots, the knots of the, uh, of the periodic orbits. One, I think, quite remarkable result, which uh, a, a French mathematician, Etienne Guisse, showed in 2000, and if you have time to write down, if you're interested at all in this, there's a fantastic online uh, kind of uh, discussion of this result with some fantastic uh, movies showing uh, how these knots evolve and so on. The result is that these Lorentz knots are entirely equivalent to what are called modular knots. Now, I'm not going to tell you what a modular knot is, because I don't have time, but suffice to say that um, it's related to properties of the modular group. And one can think of the modular group as essentially the group of two-by-two two matrices with integer elements and with unit uh, determinant. So here's an element of the modular group. And it turns out it also can be written in a sort of a, a, a string of symbols, where these symbols now define elemental two-by-two uh, two matrices. And I guess the work of Geese is basically to show an equivalence between these symbolic strings for the modular elements of the modular group and the symbolic strings of the periodic orbits of the, uh, of the Lorentz, associated with the Lorentz uh, attractor. Now, if you go into the mathematics, if you go into this, uh, this web link, you'll see very quickly that the sort of mathematics uh, Geese uses to prove this theorem is the sort of mathematics that number theorists would feel very at home with. He talks about lattices on the Argand plane. He talks about Weierstrauss elliptic functions associated with those lattices. Um, he talks about the Eisenstein series, again, associated with those lattices. And then one sort of moves into the field of elliptic curves and modular forms. And this is the area that, that Andrew Wiles unified in his proof of Fermat's last theorem. So from a set of differential equations, one suddenly finds, via the structure of the geometry which these equations produce, one is moving into areas of quite deep uh, number theory, um, which you would never have guessed, I think, to just look at the differential equations themselves. Um, another problem you might want to think about is this. If, I, uh, if you were to give me, let's say, um, a point in this three-dimensional state space of the Lorentz equations, and you ask me, is there an algorithm for determining whether that point lies uh, on, this, on this Lorentz fractal attractor? The answer is there is no algorithm. It's actually, uh, it's actually a non, if you like, it's a problem that can't be solved by finite algorithms. And you can imagine it's not sort of a totally unreasonable to imagine why that should be, because even if one knew one of the points on the attractor, it might take you, you know, no matter how far you integrated the equations, you might still not have reached the point that you were given, and so you'd never have a procedure for deciding in finite time whether your given point uh, was, uh, was, was belonging to the attractor. Now, this was proven rigorously uh, in, a, in this book by Blumetal, 
which included the famous uh, Steve Smale, incidentally, result being basically that uh, what are called halting sets must have integral Hausdorff dimension. And we know that these fractal attractors are characterized by fractional uh, dimension. And indeed, one can, uh, one can take many of the classic uh, problems in computing science that are known not to be solvable by algorithm and show that they have an equivalence in terms of, of, a, of, a, of a fractal geom geometric problem. If people have heard of the uh, post-correspondence problem, this is one of the classic problems that can't be solved by algorithms, one can show it's equivalent to the question of asking not does a point lie on the attractor, but does a line intersect the attractor of a, of, a of a chaotic dynamical system. So you can see we're going into the territory here of the Gödel incompleteness theorem and the corresponding Turing uh, um, uh, uh, non-computability type of issue. So just to summarize then so far, what I'm trying to tell you is that um, here are these Lorentz differential equations. I think Newton probably could have understood in, in principle what these equations were saying. After all, he did discover the calculus. Um, but he would never have guessed, I, I'm sure, that he would never have guessed that these equations could generate this amazingly rich and deep type of geometry. And it's through that geometry that we see links into quite uh, into some of the classic problems of 20th century mathematics, whether it's Weyl's proof of Fermat's last theorem or the Gödel theorem or the Turing non-computability theorems. So uh, the, the reason I'm saying this is that it's by focusing on this geometry that one gets these links into these deep areas of maths. So what I want to do then, having convinced you that this is, these, uh, these types of fractal geometries are really serious uh, topics and worthy of serious discussion, I want to now switch these three people at the bottom of the, f of the figure for three more. Uh, these are three, of course, tw famous 20th century physicists, uh, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, and Dirac, and ask the question, do this, does this type of geometry provide us with any new uh, insights into these deep problems of 20th century physics, which are uh, characterized by these three people, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, and Dirac? Now, at the level of differential equations, you would have to say this is a barking mad concept, that there might ever be any connection, because Schrodinger's equation, or Heisenberg's form of the Schrodinger equation, or Dirac's relativistic form of the Schrodinger equation, are all linear equations. And this equation is manifestly nonlinear. It's got these terms uh, x and y and x and z. It's a nonlinear equation. So how could there ever be any connection at all? So that's the kind of... And many, I'm sure you've read books who make this point, you know, does the unpredictability of quantum theory have anything to do with unpredictability of chaos? And usually people say, no, they're not, because one is a linear, essentially a linear problem, the other's non-linear, and don't have anything to do with each other. I want to make the point that I don't think this is correct. I think there are some profound links, but they need to be approached by looking at this intermediate geometry. This is the key. So this is sort of the basis of the talk to some extent. Um, I thought I would start with a few quotes uh, before we um, move on any further. This is uh, from uh, one of Hawking's uh, uh, popular books uh, where he sets out, I guess, the, the standard model, if you like, of, of quantum uh, interpretation, the, the, the standard interpretation which says there really is no connection 
uh, between quantum, the unpredictability of quantum physics, and uh, the unpredictability of, of, of nonlinear dynamical systems. So according to quantum physics, says Hawking, no matter how much information we obtain or how powerful our computing abilities, the outcomes of physical processes cannot be predicted with certainty because they're not determined with certainty. So it's this fundamental issue that, that, that there's, there's no de determinism uh, in quantum physics. That's the standard view. However, I want to contrast that with two other comments from um, also uh, eminent, very eminent scientists. So here's Dirac himself, one of the, the grandfathers, father figures of uh, quantum theory. One can always hope, he says, that there will be future developments which will lead to a drastically different theory from the present quantum mechanical theory and for which there may be a partial return of determinism. So this, uh, this from the, one of the guys that was the founding fathers, uh, at least suggesting that, that the door is not yet closed. And this is from my uh, third protagonist of my title, Roger Penrose, whose work will feature more and more as we go through the talk, um, with an even, I would think, more positive statement still. He says it seems quite uh, plausible that the correct theory of quantum gravity might be a deterministic but non-computable theory. Now, this non-computable actually is interesting because we've already seen, and maybe, is this, is this just a spurious link or is there something deep here? We've already seen these fractal geometries are non-computable. Membership of that, that set cannot be determined by algorithm. So is that, is that just a coincidence or is there some deep link here? Um, those three quotes uh, were, were sort of deliberately taken from three people that link very closely to, to Dennis. Um, Stephen was, uh, was one of Dennis's uh, students. Uh, Dirac was Dennis's uh, supervisor. And Roger uh, was somebody that Dennis inspired to move into uh, mathematical physics from uh, an earlier career, career in pure mathematics. So Dennis was very instrumental, pivotal, in bringing Roger into the uh, uh, relativity community. Uh, Dennis has had an enormous number of very eminent uh, students, and a few perhaps not quite so eminent students. Um, but uh, I find that it's almost impossible not to be sort of proud of my linkage to Dennis uh, because of this an ability to talk about my academic uh, brother, Stephen Hawking, my uh, academic father, uh, Roger Penrose, my academic grandfather, Paul Dirac, you know, my academic uncle, Roger Penrose. So that, that's, uh, I, I couldn't resist putting that slide up. Okay, let's just move back then to the Lorentz uh, system. And this is a slide actually I often show in my climate talks or weather type talks because it shows how uh, the predictability of the system uh, is a function of uh, initial conditions. So some parts of the attractor are extremely stable and predictable. So if one imagines this as some little error ball, perhaps a cut through an error ball, uh, the error actually doesn't grow at all as you propagate, as you, as you evolve the system forward in time. Uh, other uh, 
initial states are more unpredictable and others yet uh, more un unpredictable still. The fact that the predictability varies around the attractor is a direct result of uh, the nonlinearity of the equations. So if these, these are our Lorentz equations, we can linearize them, uh, so look at the growth of small perturbations, and the operator is now the derivative of f with respect to x. So if f is at least quadratic in x, then df by dx is at least linear in x, i.e. this operator depends on the underlying state, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, so some, we you know, some weather forecasts, as Michael Fish uh, found to his cost, can be very unpredictable, and in fact, in other cases, we can make very potentially quite long-range forecasts with confidence. That's the sort of basis behind um, much of, of weather prediction. But I, I'm not going to go down that route. What I want to talk about is what equation is actually describing this evolution of probability? I mean, for example, one could take this point here and say this isopleth, this little ring, uh, defines a 90% probability that the true state lies within that ring. Then as you map this forward in time, you get to some future forecast time, and there's a 90% probability that the true state lies in that ring at the forecast time. Or this would be a sort of a squashed banana, if you like, if you looked at it properly. There's a 90% probability it lies in that squashed banana. What's the equation that's describing that evolution of probability? It's this thing. It's called the Liouville equation. This is written in its general, most general form. By the way, some people think the Liouville equation only works for Hamiltonian systems. This is not true. The Liouville equation, conservation of probability, works for Hamiltonian and non-Hamiltonian systems. This is a bit like the mass conservation equation um, for a compress compressible fluid. If it was incompressible, you could move the V out. But if it's compressible, the V has to be in here. Now, this is not, uh, this is not mass density and, volume, uh, and velocity in, in physical space. This is probability and velocity in state space. But it's still a conservation equation, nevertheless, conservation of probability. Now, one thing you can note if you look at this equation is it's linear in, in probability. It's linear in rho. And this is an important point I want to make. If I gave you that equation, you, you would not be able to deduce, because it is linear, it cannot be underpinned by some underlying nonlinear dynamic. The linearity of that, this equation says nothing about the, uh, whether the dynamics that generates that probability is linear or nonlinear. And in fact, in this system, as I've just pointed, the, whole, the, the system is nonlinear. So the linearity of the Liouville equation is really just a statement of the fact that uh, that probabilities are conserved uh, as the flow evolves. Now, if we have a, a, um, a Hamiltonian system, we can write the uh, Liouville equation in this form using Poisson brackets, I'm sure familiar to people. Um, or if indeed, if we had a dynamical system which was approximated, approximated a Hamiltonian system, this would be a good approximation. So I want to contrast this with the Dirac form, at least, of the, uh, of the Schrodinger equation, which I've written here. And the, the first point I want to make is how remarkably similar it, it is formally. Um, it has a, a row, a d rho by dt. It has a sort of a, 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 an anti-symmetric bracket. It has Hamiltonians in and so on. 
There seems to be some formal close similarity with the classical Liouville equation. Um, and I'm sure it's because of that that uh, Dirac perhaps was inspired to make that comment that, you know, just, just as this equation uh, can be underpinned by deterministic dynamics, so maybe also this equation might be underpinned by uh, deterministic dynamics. Um, and of course, the point that this, this equation is linear uh, says nothing at all about whether the, the, the underpinning dynamics is linear or nonlinear. might just as well be nonlinear. Incidentally, just as an aside, I often find you know, people who, who look for nonlinear uh, things that might, you know, nonlinear processes that might come into quantum mechanics sometimes add nonlinear terms to the Schrodinger equation itself. And I always find this an extremely misguided idea, personally, because uh, if this is just reflecting a conservation of probability, uh, you don't really want to tinker with it by adding nonlinear terms. If you want to look for nonlinearity, try and find the equation that underpins uh, this type of conservation of probability. Okay, now, of course, I recognize that, that there are differences as well between the classical Louisville equation. There's a square root of minus one, uh, there's a Planck's constant, and in fact, these things aren't just, well, these aren't functions in, in state space, they're operators in some Hilbert space, and this is an operator commutator bracket, not a Poisson bracket. So, there are similarities and there are differences. Do these differences matter? Does the fact it is uh, operating on a Hilbert space rather than a classical state space, does it matter? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, it does matter. And there are a number of no-go theorems in quantum mechanics which, uh, uh, which tell us very much that it does matter. And the most famous of these, I guess, is, is Bell's theorem, um, which in a nutshell says no physical theory based on local causal hidden variables. So you posit some deterministic system uh, which operates deterministically. The variables of the, of the deterministic system may be hidden to you or hidden, certainly hidden to quantum mechanics. But Bell's theorem says that um, one can never replicate the predictions of quantum mechanics. It's based on um, this inequality which I don't, proceed, don't propose to describe uh, in detail, or I don't propose to describe at all. So you either, you either say from this that there is no such thing as deterministic reality, or you say, well, if there is deterministic reality, it somehow violates uh, principles of relativity. There's something, to use Einstein's phrase, some spooky action at a distance going on um, in, if we want to try to underpin um, quantum mechanics with some underlying deterministic model. That's the standard interpretation. Now, I want to, um, at this stage, just talk about um, an idea which Bell himself recognized was a potential way out of the constrictions of his theorem. I'll just say right from the beginning, it's, it's an idea which he himself did not believe in, and I don't think anybody uh, in, the, in the community or almost nobody believes in. So I'm not actually going to advocate this, you'll be pleased to know, but I, it's an important concept to get over in what I uh, will, can, will talk about later on. And actually, at first sight, it's a rather strange uh, loophole or, or uh, escape uh, from the constrictions of Bell's theorem. You might think to escape from the constrictions of Bell's theorem, 
you might want to somehow relax this notion of determinism and imagine things being more stochastic, maybe. But what Bell says, actually, is, is the opposite. There is a way to escape the inference of superluminal speeds and spooky action at a distance, but it involves absolute determinism in the universe, so going somehow even more deterministic. So what does that mean? What does, and, and this word, phrase, absolute determinism, people now generally use the word superdeterminism. So what is superdeterminism? What's the difference between determinism and superdeterminism? Well, this at least is my understanding of the difference between these words. Um, in a normal deterministic system, you have maybe a set of differential equations describing the evolution of the system, and uh, you start off with some initial condition, and then the equation maps you into the future. Now, here the, the equations are deterministic, the dynamics is fixed, but you can imagine perhaps you've got a, a free choice to make in what the initial conditions are. So you don't have to start from a specific initial condition in the Lorentz model. In principle, you can start the equations off from any point in state space you like. So you have a free choice, and, and to some extent in this idea, the, the, the initial conditions are independent of the dynamics, so go anywhere you like, but when you made that choice, then you run the dynamics, and the dynamics are fixed, and that provides you with a future state. The superdeterministic idea is where somehow uh, not only is the dynamics fixed, but your initial state is fixed. Now, how this should be, how your initial state should be fixed, what determines that your initial state is fixed, is another matter, and we'll come on to try to discuss some of these issues a bit. But just say for the moment, there is some reason, some principle, that your initial state, there's no choice at all. Then absolutely everything is fixed. Your initial state's fixed. Your deterministic uh, dynamics are fixed. The reason this is relevant is that in the Bell theorem, uh, if you pos posit a so-called hidden variable model, what that does, in general, is predict... Uh, outcomes of, uh, of, of physical experiments you might do. So you might measure the spin of a particle, um, and if, uh, your hidden variable model will tell you for a given particle what the result is, not only for experiments that you might actually do on that particle, but for experiments that you might have done but didn't do. So this is what uh, philosophers would call counterfactual experiments. So... Uh, I actually measured uh, the particle in the x direction, but I might have measured it in the x direction. Uh, a, a standard hidden variable model will give you not only uh, the prediction in the, in the z direction that you actually did, it would also tell you, give you a prediction of that counterfactual experiment that you didn't actually do, but you somehow might have done in the x direction. Now, if you posit then the world is super-deterministic, then obviously these so-called counterfactual measurements become, by definition, they're not things that, that correspond to, there's only that one trajectory, it's, everything's fixed, so there, is no, there are no counterfactual worlds to consider. So it's a kind of a, almost a trivial way in which the Bell uh, theorem can be, in some sense, uh, negated by disallowing these types of counterfactual experiments. But the problem with it is, and this is the reason nobody actually believes this is a, a viable way in physics, um, is that it seems to say something uh, 
about the world that's just uncomfortably fine-tuned, uncomfortably special. So, for example, I might roll a dice um, and uh, use that outcome to determine how I'm going to orientate my measuring apparatus. So if I roll the dice and it's a five, that will determine some angle for the measuring apparatus. Now, in the super-deterministic world, the hidden variable will have to somehow be in harmony with the outcome of that dice in order, that, uh, the, 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 uh, in, order, in order to get the correct quantum mechanical probabilities or in order to violate the Bell inequalities. But you might imagine, well, just as I was about to roll that dice, I sneezed, and then the dice actually ended up as a six rather than a five, or a tiny gust of air you know, slightly affected the dice as it was rolling, and it ended up as a six. And that tiny perturbation, the sneeze or the, or the gust of air, would completely upset that harmony that is required to, uh, to, to violate the Bell inequalities. So you can take all those little perturbations back to the beginning of time, and the conundrum you're left with is that any almost infinitesimal uh, perturbation, let's say, to the Big Bang... Uh, would produce a world where this perfect harmony that you'd set up had been somehow destroyed. So the problem for a super-determinist is to say, well, why should the initial conditions be precisely Big Bang initial conditions and not some just marginal uh, sort of quasi-random perturbation of Big Bang? And I think all a super-determinist could do would say, well, maybe God decided uh, this, this is... Uh, on the Big Bang initial condition and not this other one. Well, as theorists, we don't like, uh, you know, we like our theories to be self-contained. We don't want uh, external agents to somehow determine uh, important parts of the theory. So uh, this, is, uh, this is considered then a, a sort of an implausible um, a, a reconciliation of the, of the Bell theorem. And so, as things stand, people do in belie indeed believe either... We live in a world where there isn't any deterministic reality, or if there is something, something spooky action at a distance, something superluminal is, is, is happening. Okay, I'm not satisfied with either of these explanations. So um, I, this is why I've been going back and thinking, and as I say, trying to think about the things which are pretty much second nature to me over the years, and ask whether uh, these provide some... Uh, new ways of thinking about this uh, rather old problem. So we talked about the Lorentz attractor. Um, at the heart of any fractal attractor is um, a Cantor set. This is perhaps the simplest of all uh, fractals. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this idea. You start with the real line between 0 and 1. Think of that as your zeroth iterate of the Cantor set. Your first iterate will be throwing away the middle third... Your second iterate will be throwing away the middle thirds of the two remaining pieces. Your next iterate will be throwing the middle third of all the remaining pieces. You carry on with those iterates, and then you take the intersection of the iterates um, over all the, uh, all the iterates, and this is the Cantor set. Um, now, you can define from that a dynamical system uh, which operates on that Cantor set. So this is a very simple dynamical system called an iterated function system. In this example, there are just two uh, functions which do different things to the state, the current state. But basically, the action of either F1 or F2, 
which is to be considered as a kind of time evolution operator, um, keeps the state on this Cantor set. By the way, the Cantor set is another nice and very simple example about how number theory kind of comes into these geometries, uh, in, this, in this case in a very simple way, because one can represent a point on the Cantor set by just uh, uh, writing a, number, a fraction, say, between 0 and 1 in base 3. And if the base 3 expansion of the number has no digit 1 in it, if it only has digits 0 and 2, then it's a point on the Cantor set by definition, because you've thrown away all the bits where you'd have the digit 1. So now I'm going to uh, consider a perturbation of a point uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Cantor set. And let's suppose, for the sake of argument, my, I have no knowledge of this Cantor set when I do this perturbation. So I'm going to take a, a, a very small perturbation, but in some sense it'll be random with respect to the real line itself. So imagine I have no knowledge of the geometry, or I choose to ignore the geometry of the Cantor set in defining my, um, my, my um, small perturbation. So here we are. I've chosen a, what I'm calling a geometrically unconstrained perturbation. It's, some, it's a number that's very small, but it's been somehow chosen from, that, from the real line itself. And therefore, somewhere, there may be lots of zeros to start with because it's a small perturbation, but somewhere there'll be ones. And because there are ones, as soon as I, in general, add it on to my point on the Cantor set, I'll, I'll move it off. So here, x, of, x prime has been perturbed off the Cantor set. Now, what this is saying is that if you view the Cantor set from the outside, it looks incredibly special. Any tiny perturbation will take you off the Cantor set. And indeed, that is consistent with a Cantor set having uh, zero volume or zero measure uh, relative to the real line. It looks incredibly special. It looks high, very, high, very finely tuned. Any tiny perturbation will take you off the Cantor set. So this initial state, x naught looks incredibly fine-tuned when viewed from the outside. I'm calling this, by the way, fractal determinism because it, it, it's a type of determinism which either looks deterministic or super-deterministic depending on how you look at it. And when you look at it from the outside, it looks a bit super-deterministic because any tiny perturbation uh, uh, destroys this balance uh, associated with the, the system being on the Cantor set. On the other hand, if I... I'm aware of, the, of this geometry when I construct these perturbations. So I'm going to construct now a perturbation that, uh, what I will call geometrically constrained perturbation, which ensures that I stay on the Cantor set. When I add this perturbation, it stays on the Cantor set. Now, at first sight, you might think that these, this, these perturbations are much less numerous than the more random ones relative to the real line. But the remarkable property of the Cantor set is that there are as many points in the Cantor set as there are actually on the real line itself. There's a non-denumerable infinite number of points in, on both. And a way to see this is if you take a point on the, on the real line between 0 and 1 and express it as a binary number just with zeros and 1s, 
and then write instead of the one, replace each one with a digit two, then that becomes a point in base three on the Cantor set. So there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between points on the real line and points on the, uh, on the Cantor set. So when you're inside the Cantor set, it looks absolutely enormous. It's, it's as big as the real line ever was. The aficionados of Doctor Who may liken the Cantor set to the TARDIS. Um, if you look at it from the outside, it looks incredibly small, but open the door and go in, and it's fantastically big and spacious. This is the, now, of course, Cantor's uh, colleagues at the time thought he was completely crazy, uh, and I think that drove him a little bit to despair. Uh, but he was absolutely dead right. And also, these things underpin all of these wonderful uh, geometric attractors, which uh, I talked about at the beginning, such as the Lorentz attractor. Um, we can do a similar thing uh, for Lorentz 63. Um, take, uh, uh, take a point. Uh, to start, if we start on the attractor and evolve along trajectories of the Lorentz attractor, well, then we'll stay on the attractor. There are many perturbations. There's a non-denumerable infinite number of perturbations to the initial conditions which keep the initial conditions on the, uh, on the attractor. So there's a, there's, a, 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 there's a lot of freedom. So it looks, from inside on the attractor, it looks deterministic. You have a big uh, choice of, uh, of degrees of freedom. But on the other hand, if you do something dynamically unconstrained, you can take yourself off the uh, attractor. And a, and a possible way of doing, of taking yourself off is to, is to take a perturbation which keeps... Uh, say, one component uh, unchanged and just perturbs the other two components. This will take you off the attractor. Now, when I was thinking about this, this struck me as a very... Uh, it, it, in my mind, it was kind of reminiscent of those counterfactual experiments where you, you think, here's a particle, I actually measure it in this way, I could have measured it this way. So when you say that, you're perturbing the sort of conceptual experiment you're thinking about is one where the particle stays fixed, you do nothing to the particle, but you somehow perturb your measuring system so that instead of the actual direction, uh, you perturb some degrees of freedom to make the direction slightly uh, different, and you say, well, what would have happened there? So let's just imagine a toy, the, the Lorentz model now is a toy universe, and just think about what this type of perturbation might mean. It might mean perturbing two degrees of freedom which correspond to the orientation of your measuring apparatus, keeping fixed the degree of freedom associated with the hidden variable associated with your, the particle you're about to measure. So this would then be an unreasonable, I would say physically unreasonable type of perturbation if you believe the universe was constrained to this underlying geometry. And similarly, the experiment where you say, well, I, I, threw my, I threw the dice, and that determined, again, how I would measure uh, this particle. I will now consider a, a, a hypothetical universe where the particle, again, was the same particle, but now I sneezed, which caused the dice to land in on a different number, and that to, to lead to a different measurement orientation. Again, that corresponds to keeping fixed one of the, one of the components of the state vector and varying the other two. And this would be a perturbation 
that would be unconstrained. It would be something that you were just thinking up out of your head as a possible type of perturbation. But if you had the view that there was some underlying geometric constraint associated with the, uh, the, the universe somehow lying on, a, on or belonging to uh, an invariant set, then this would be a physically unreasonable perturbation. A physically reasonable perturbation would be one where all three components were perturbed. So not only that, so there are plenty of universes perhaps where you did in fact had where the orientation of the measuring device was as it was in the counterfactual world, but in that universe the hidden variable was also different to keep the whole system on the invariant set. So this is something which I have been, uh, as I say, rather interested in as a kind of this is not my day job, if you like, but it's something that um, uh, I, I find a compelling uh, idea myself. Um, whether I can convince my colleagues of that, I don't know. Uh, but uh, that this may actually, what I call fractal determinism, may actually provide um, a, a conspiracy-free loophole for the Bell theorem. And a paper in Procore Sock a few years ago about it. But there is a fundamental assumption here uh, to make this postulate make any sort of sense, and that is that one can really think of the universe as a dynamical system in its own right. But it's a dynamical system to beat all dynamical systems, I suppose. Um, but more than that, it's a dynamical system which evolves on one of these special types of, uh, of fractal geometries. Now, I'm, I, I've all... I actually, there's an, I mean, one could talk about what is the evidence, the cosmological evidence that the universe is a dynamical system that evolves on a, a fractal invariant set. Um, that's a great topic for discussion, but I'm not going to, I'm going to leave that because we'll, we'll run out of time. So let's just assume that is a viable model for the universe, that it, it actually evolves on, a, on one of these zero volume uh, invariant sets in its state space. I want to come back now to um, then uh, these three key differences between the Louisville equation and the Schrodinger equation. Planck's constant, uh, square root of minus one, and the fact it's a Hilbert space. Um, and if you don't if you want it a bit more vivid, uh, Hilbert space means that cats are both alive and dead. So the question I want to ask is, if this does provide a potential loophole, can we actually go from just postulating this as a possible way out of the dilemma of underpinning quantum mechanics with something deterministic, can we go from that to an actual theory? Can we actually put some meat on the bones, as it were, and construct a real theory um, based on this, this idea? So can we, in particular, can we construct um, a fractal set, a bit like I did for the Cantor set, but something which will obviously be more complex than that, from which quantum statistics would emerge naturally. Um, so I just want to spend the last uh, 10 minutes of the talk going through um, some uh, slightly more technical stuff, which is in a paper on the archive, which I wrote last year, um, trying to at least give some outline for how one might do this. So I want to start by talking about Planck's constant. How might that emerge? Uh, let's start by thinking about a, a Stern-Gerlach experiment. Um, 
Now, I'm going to be very much motivated by um, people that have been, and Roger is, 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 is certainly well known in the field, people have been motivated by thinking about uh, gravity as a possible mechanism for collapse, state vector collapse. Now, I'm not talking about collapse in this model because I'm trying not to uh, view superpositions as something uh, of, of fundamental significance. So, uh, but nevertheless, I'm going to use the, t the order of magnitude calculations um, to motivate this work. So the idea is we have uh, now a sort of bundle of space-times, a bundle of trajectories on this supposed invariant set, this fractal ge uh, geometry of the universe as a whole. And I'm going to use this language of symbolic dynamics. Um, so I want to label uh, each space-time with a, with a color, which represents its symbolic label. Um, so these are trajectories uh, corresponding to space-times where a particle has gone through the magnet and is, is on its way up towards the spin-up detector. And here are some trajectories of space-times where there's a particle on its way to the spin-down. So this, this time T1 is after it's left the, the magnet, but long before it's got to the detector. And I want to ask the question, are these space-times gravitationally distinct from one another? And to do that, I'm going to take pairs of space-times and ask whether their interaction, their gravitational interaction energy integrated over the trajectory uh, exceeds Planck's constant. The gravitational interaction energy is if you have two, uh, let's say, two lumps of matter, um, the gravitational interaction energy, in Newtonian gravity anyway, is easily defined by imagining moving one lump of matter to the position of the second lump of matter uh, against the gravitational field of the second lump. So how much energy do you need to move it against the gravitational field of, of say, this one? That's the gravitational interaction energy. Now, at this, tiny t at this small time here, then for sure... Uh, although Planck's constant is a small number, this thing will be minusculely small, and so this criterion will not be uh, satisfied. And I view that as a statement that each of these uh, uh, will be given the same symbolic label. They're not distinct enough to be given distinct symbolic labels. But again, using the work of Diossi, Penrose, Kibble, Percival, many others, there are good indications that when... Uh, the particle has started to interact with atoms in the detectors, and you're starting to see macroscopic differences uh, between, the, uh, bet between whether the particles excited the spin-up detector or the spin-down detector, then this interaction gravitational energy can start to exceed Planck's constant. So this might be a small term, but Planck's constant's all, also small, and the order of magnitude estimates, I'm just going to take this on faith now, uh, when, when, the, when you start to get macroscopic effects in the detectors. So at this point, then, you can give these distinct uh, labels. So Planck's constant in this picture is entering through, uh, essentially through gravitational effects. And one can analyze uh, multiple Stern-Gerlach experiments this way. So here's, here's a particle, here's a series of trajectories. They go through one Stern-Gerlach apparatus. So this one is... And, and this one is, the top one is, is blocked or measured somehow. So these three have the same symbolic label, which is different to that one. Uh, you can take this through a second sequential Stern-Gerlach apparatus, 
And now these three trajectories start to, or this, this trajectory starts to become distinguished from these two gravitationally. And then finally, in the third one, these two. And one can derive the whole of Stern-Gerlach statistics in this, in this way quite straightforwardly. This, by the way, is how Schwinger introduces his students to quantum mechanics through these sequential Stern-Gerlach experiments. Um, you might, oh yeah, so I couldn't resist this. You might um, say gravitational interaction energy, this is very Newtonian. How do you define this relativistically? Uh, this is actually what I did for my thesis under Dennis, defining gravitational energy momentum. And uh, we came up with, I think, a rather neat solution to this rather old problem. How do you define gravitational energy momentum in space-times which don't have killing vectors? And the proposal was a, not, not a tensor field on space-time, but a tensor field on the tangent bundle to space-time, which is a bit like a state space for space-time. Um, so this is, this, is my, this is in the days when uh, you had typewriters and ink and stuff. Uh, it, appeared, it appeared eventually in FizRev. So actually, there is a way to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm just, just showing this because it amuses me. It links back a bit to my thesis work, that there is a way to uh, develop these ideas of, for, for how Planck's constant might be set based on relativistic gravitational energy momentum. So conscious of the time, I'm moving on. I want to talk about the second uh, aspect, Planck's, uh, the square root of minus one. One of the interesting properties of a uh, fractal is its self-similarity. It's a, an essential part of a fractal, in fact. So if one was to zoom into a Cantor set, you'd see a precise copy of the whole thing, and you could zoom in again, and you'd see another copy. Um, if you need to really... Uh, um, if your theory requires you to uh, keep that, have that notion of self-similarity at the fore, it turns out that it's very useful to um, describe the dimension, the Hausdorff dimension of the fractal, using complex numbers rather than real numbers. And the, the, the second, if you like, the, the complex number characterizes not only, if you like, the fractality, but also this notion of the self uh, similarity as you zoom in, how does it, uh, how quickly does it amplify uh, to the back to the original scale? I guess the mother of all self-similar. I mean, this, this, uh, this, this. I'll just show this. People have seen this before, but I feel I haven't done sort of justice to, to the wonders of fractals. So I'll just show this movie, which just illustrates this notion of of self-similarity. If you haven't seen it before. Uh, for the Mandelbrot set, we're focusing on a bit now which, uh, where this kind of this scaling symmetry of part, which is pretty, pretty manifest, it just keeps repeating it and repeating uh, ad infinitum. Um, now, if one is, I, I'll just leave this point very briefly, um, if one is trying to um, develop a relativistic theory, a theory that's, that's invariant under Lorentz, Lorentz with a T now, transformations. Um, so you might say, suppose you had a spatially extend, a, a, a fractal set which described a spatially extended dynamical system, and you wanted that scaling uh, invariance, that scale invariance to be Lorentz invariant. Okay, now in Lorentz, in Lorentz transformation, one man's, uh, one man's time is another man's space and time. So if you want your 
um, scaling symmetry to be Lorentz invariant in a spatially extended dynamical system, you better have some oscillatory uh, type of uh, structure in the configuration space, in the spatial degrees of freedom of that spatially extended system. So in some sense, my, I think the, the picture which I am sort of coming to for, you know, why is the wave function wavy, is it is actually uh, main, it's, it's, it's needed to make this type of scale invariant uh, symmetry Lorentz invariant under a boost for a system with, with a spatially extended system. All right, I'm going to move on. This is the last sort of, this is the last bit. I, we're a little bit, well, no, I didn't start till 25 past, so I'm okay, but might, might overrun by a couple of minutes. I just want to very, just come back to this last, the last bit now, the Hilbert space. How do, would that fit into this picture of um, uh, fractal invariant sets. So I just want to remind a very standard uh, picture about Hilbert space for a simple qubit. Um, there, there's the um, Hilbert space state for this uh, state, state here on the equator relative to a, a, a basis where the north pole's up and the south pole's down. But now I want to do a unitary transformation where I rotate the basis, so now, if you like, the North Pole points here, and ask how does this state transform under that uh, rotation of the basis? And quantum mechanics gives us a very clear answer. Now, one can think of this as this counterfactual experiment. So the state is well-defined. Let's say this is the actual experiment I did, but I ask what would have happened had I done this experiment. Quantum mechanics gives us a well-defined state, uh, at least in, for giving us probabilities, uh, relative to this rotated basis. In this fractal theory, and I'm, I'm jumping over quite a bit now, um, the equivalent of the Hilbert space is what I'm calling a symbolic skeleton. These symbols appear as, uh, as long symbolic sequences, a bit like uh, for those Lorentz uh, orbits. Um, the North Pole would have just zeros, the South Pole would have just ones. On the equator, you have mixtures of zeros and ones um, at a particular, and antipodal points have opposite, you know, zero gets flipped to a one, and a particular co-latitude theta, you'd have a, a symbolic sequence where the frequency of a zero would be given by cosquine squared theta over two. Um, and these are related to certain operators which I don't have time to talk, to, talk about. Um, a key point about this symbolic skeleton uh, is that these, these cosine uh, of co-latitude angles are, are rational. The cosine is, 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 in fact, a base 2 rational number. So these can be as dense as you like. These are, I've just drawn a rather coarse uh, representation of what is a really dense set of points. So I want to consider this counterfactual and how... Uh, how this, um, how this, this works in, in this alternative sort of fractal picture. So I'm taking this point here. So these dots, in some sense, are the set of all allowable points, and this is very dense. Um, this is the set of all the blue points and the red points on the equator are the set of all allowable states relative to the rotated uh, basis. But now I want to know... This, if I keep this point, this is, this is my original state, and we'll say, what's that state relative to this rotated basis? 
In other words, does this coincide with one of the allowable states? Then another very interesting kind of number theoretic result comes out. This angle between here and here is pi over 8 by construction. And cosine of pi over 8 is not a rational number. Uh, so it doesn't lie on this set of points which have rational cosine. And in fact, it doesn't matter. This can be any base 2 rational number between 0 and 1. A uh, simple number, number theoretic calculation tells you this cosine is always irrational. So this construction captures perfectly this notion of, of counterfactual indefiniteness. This point has no representation relative to this rotated uh, basis. Um, uh, Heisenberg usually, well, occasionally used this German phrase, das Unbestimmtheitprinzip, to describe the uncertainty, what we call the uncertainty principle, but this actually uh, translates better as the inde indeterminacy principle rather than the uncertainty principle. And I think this indeterminacy uh, characterizes this construction um, pretty well. So I view the Hilbert space as uh, a sort of completion onto the continuum of this symbolic skeleton. A bit like the reals are the completion of the rationals. But you know, and the reals are fantastic, of course, for, for physics. We would, nobody would be without the real numbers. But you don't want to take the real numbers too seriously, in my view. You can do some pretty strange things with the real numbers if you take them too seriously. People might be familiar with the Banach-Tarski uh, construction. You can take a bar of gold. You can chop it up into a finite number of pieces, stick it back together again, and the bar of gold is twice as big as it was. So here's a way to either get rich very quickly or to devalue the value of gold very quickly. Uh, but of course, the reason it's got twice as big is that you've treated the real numbers too seriously in terms of physics. My own picture, and this is, I suppose, a bit controversial, is that the Hilbert space is a bit like this. It's a fantastic tool for doing calculations. And of course, all students should be taught the Hilbert space because it, you have to use it to do calculations. But you shouldn't take it too seriously. Because if you do take it too seriously, you end up with strange paradoxes, like Schrodinger's cat. And if you, so, so that's, my, that's my picture of how the, the Hilbert space comes out. It's a completion of this skeleton. Uh, but it's, and it's, and it, in that sense, it's a useful tool for calculations. But don't take it too seriously. Um, Right, I'm just going to finish now. So um, my claim is that if, you, if, you, if the universe uh, evolves on a, on a fractal set, um, one can uh, overcome the Bell theorem without any need for conspiracy, no need for God. And in fact, Bell's implausible conspiracy, like all good conspiracy theories, is really just all in the mind. Because the sort of conceptual issues that, you, that lead you to think there might be some conspiracy are... are what I would call geometrically unconstrained uh, uh, types of uh, considerations. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy with, with Dirac and with, uh, with Roger, so I'm less wedded to Stephen's view about quantum physics. Um, I do want to just finish with a, with a word about quantum gravity, because it seems to me that if this picture, if there's any uh, sense in this picture, what one is proposing here is some extension of, of 
general relativity theory, taking, if you like, Einstein's insight about the importance of geometry, uh, but now not only for space-time, but for state-space itself. And the claim then is that, uh, that from this extended type of idea about, uh, uh, about uh, geometry, and in particular then about gravity, quantum physics may be emergent. Now, if that's the case, then the whole quantum gravity program seems to me to be, put, be, to be the wrong way around. It's putting the cart uh, before the horse, the horse being gravity and the cart being quantum mechanics. So if I had to sort of finish with a prediction, I would, I would say if we ever got to the stage of being able to detect gravitons, we won't ever find them, because I think it's a, a, personally, I think it's a misguided concept. So my last statement is to say the three great theories of 20th century physics, uh, quantum mechanics, relativity, chaos theory, they're a little bit dis disparate theories as we stand have them currently. Quantum mechanics and relativity are not combined. Chaos and quantum mechanics are not you know, are considered different. Actually, even chaos, if we think of chaos as, as defined in terms of, of, of uh, Lyapunov exponents, that actually is not a very relativistic idea because you could scale time logarithmically and then a Lyapunov the exponentially diverging trajectories would just look like linearly diverging trajectories and then it wouldn't be chaotic. All these things, in my view, can come together by thinking about this underlying geometry. And I suppose if I had to summarize my talk in one sentence is that we should think uh, perhaps of the laws of physics in their most primitive expression in terms of state-space geometry. Move away from the old paradigm of differential equations and think, like Einstein taught us, about geometry. Well, so um, just to finish by saying, um, Dennis, of course, was a, an enormously um, eminent and distinguished scientist, but he was also somebody who was phenomenally good at inspiring uh, young scientists like myself. And I hope if you come away with nothing else, you will understand that an education under Dennis Sharma is really something one can never shake off. <laughs> Thank you very much.